If you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis 1. We'll look at verse 1 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin, and a lot of you probably know it by heart. Um, We're starting a new series now on uh, the first few chapters of Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 through 3. It's a series that uh, I'm calling The Beginning of the End, um, just because it sounded catchy, mainly. Um, Actually, no, there's a lot... uh, a lot to that title that uh, we'll talk about over the course of the series, but um, just a little bit of an introduction to the series before we get to the, the text itself. Um, uh, Moses is the author of the Torah. Um, he probably, the, the Torah is the, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the first five books, books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and those, those books, um, for the most part, were authored by Moses or compiled by Moses uh, right there during the time of um, Israel, uh, the exodus, uh, their, their wanderings, and uh, their coming into the promised land. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it's the beginning of the Bible. It's the beginning of the, the Bible for the Hebrews, for the Jews, uh, the, the Old Testament, what we consider uh, just the Old Testament. It's the beginning of the whole Bible, including the New Testament, uh, that we as Christians acknowledge as uh, the scriptures, the word of God. And um, Martin Luther says of... Uh, of the early chapters in Genesis, that it's certainly the foundation of the whole of the Scripture. And uh, Francis Schaeffer said that it, in some ways these chapters are the most important ones in the Bible. Um, and I'm sorry that uh, we're not going to be able to answer everybody's questions. Um, I, I read I don't know how many books this week in preparation for this first sermon in a, in a new series, and it's, it's very profound what we're going to be looking at. It's over my head. I'd say even if, it, uh, if you just look at this, um, this one little verse um, that we're going to look at in verse, verse 1 uh, this morning, I don't understand everything that's going on there. So um, we'll do the best we can, but we know that it's, it's tremendously important. The, the um, early chapters of Genesis give a shape to everything that we expect to follow in, um, in the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the whole Bible. Um, Everything that God's doing in the world and everything that's recorded for us as the revelation of, of who he is and what he's done in the world, um, everything uh, kind of emanates from these first couple chapters. It really sets the tone. It really sets the stage for everything that we should expect uh, throughout the rest of the scriptures. And, um, and it is an account of the beginning. And that's very, it's a very complicated thing to say uh, that Genesis is an account of the beginning. Um, in what way is it an account of the beginning? Uh, it, the beginning of what? What is it that uh, God is trying to get across to us in these early chapters of Genesis? Um, the, be- the beginning of what? It's, it's the beginning of everything, in a sense, right? The beginning of everything that we see and, and live, right? It's the beginning of that. But um, then it begs the question, what is everything about? Right? What is everything about? What is nature? What is the nature of the reality that we live in? The reality that uh, the Bible is... Um, trying to shape for us, trying to give us God's perspective on, right? What's the nature of reality? What's the, the meaning of reality? What's the significance? What's the purpose? What's the direction, right? The trajectory, uh, the destiny of the reality that we see begun here. Um, those questions are all kind of intertwined, you know? Um, the beginning of what? What is everything about? Uh, and Genesis sets the stage to answer these questions. Uh, there's a commentator, Henry Blochet, I think that's how you pronounce his name, I think he's French, 
uh, it would be probably Henri then, wouldn't it? Um, anyway, <clears throat> who uh, said that frequently indeed the beginning unlocks the principle. The Constitution reveals the nature. The human race quite rightly feels that it cannot find its bearings for life today without having light shed on its origins. All right, so what we're going to look at as we look at Genesis 1 through 3 is what the beginning, how God is communicating it to us in these chapters, what the beginning has to say about the world and history and our lives and how we're to live. And um, uh, Derek Kidner says that the beginning is pregnant with the end. The beginning is pregnant with the end and the whole process present to God who is first and last. So this is not just some kind of neutral beginning and then God kind of fiddles with it from there and decides, well, let's do this. Let's, let's uh, tweak this and move in this direction now or whatever. But uh, from, from the beginning, the end was known to God and he, in the beginning, created all things um, with a, a certain purpose in mind, with a certain trajectory in mind, right, with the end in mind. So it's the beginning of this particular process. It's the beginning of this particular goal, right? That's what we're looking at as we look at these uh, chapters. <clears throat> and um, ultimately, <clears throat> that goal has to do with our having a, having a relationship with God, having fellowship with God, right? So the Westminster Confession, when it says what the scriptures principally teach, kind of the main point that is trying to be gotten across here with the scriptures, of which this kind of sets the stage, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and uh, what duty God requires of man. So who God is and how we can have a relationship with him, right? how we're supposed to fellowship with him. Um, and the original meaning of the text is, uh, is not entirely evident to us in our culture now, right? So God entered into the world with um, at, at various stages to uh, shape events the, over the course of history, the course of redemptive history, his dealings with people to have a relationship with them, and he entered into particular cultures with particular languages, right? And those are all uh, long gone from us. We're far removed from those things, which means it's extra work for people in our cultures with people, people with our worldviews, with our presuppositions, with our language even, uh, it's hard work for us to understand what was, what's actually being said here, what's actually being communicated here. Uh, but, um, but ultimately, I think it can be summed up in, um, in this, that the, the beginning chapters of the Scripture, as with all the Scriptures, are concerned with this theological purpose of, um, of having a relationship with, with this particular God. You know? Who is this God? What's he like? What's he doing in the world? And how can we know him? Uh, that's what these chapters are concerned with. And uh, that, that might be disappointing to you uh, to basically consider the fact that we're just going to talk about the same thing we always talk about when we come to the first couple chapters of Genesis. Um, there, there probably won't be too much in the way of uh, science, right? A lot of us are really interested in um, how this account interacts with modern scientific questions. Um, but uh, J.V. Fesco, who's another... He's written a book on, on this. He says that the Israelites had left Egypt. It's a land given over to idolatry and paganism. They were preparing to enter the promised land, a land occupied by idolaters and pagans. And if this is the setting, then far from calculating the age of the universe, 
the Genesis account reminded the Israelites of the character and attributes of the God they serve. This text is about who created. And um, probably not about how he created, not in the ways that we're asking that question in a modern, secular, scientific culture. Right? Um, who created, not necessarily how. So who? Who is the God who, who created? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. But uh, as we heard in our um, New Testament reading, God says, Christ says, Behold, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Right? So, so um, we're going to look at this in light of the fact that we know Jesus Christ is, the, is God. He's the one who created uh, all things that we see um, taking place in these early chapters of Genesis. And Alistair McGrath said, before setting out the concepts of creation found in the Old Testament, it's important to establish a fundamental point of interpretation. Right? For Christians, the Old Testament is to be read in light of the New Testament, and especially in light of Christ. Scripture centers on and enfolds Christ. So Christians, we read the Bible the way Jesus taught us to read the Bible. He taught us explicitly that the scriptures are about him. It says in Luke 24, after his resurrection, when he was with some of his disciples, it said that beginning with Moses, that's right here where we're beginning, in the beginning, uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's a book about God, and Jesus Christ says it's a book about himself. So um, that's how we're going to read it. And it's... Uh, that shouldn't throw us off. We should be open to doing that. If we're Christians, we should read the Bible the way um, Jesus taught us to read the Bible. And it's, it's kind of like now reading the opening words of some literary masterpiece, like a, like a mystery novel, right? If you've already read this mystery novel all the way through to its end, then when you go back to the beginning and you read those, those first words, um, you think about it differently, don't you? You can't read it the same way you read it the first time uh, because you know the end from the beginning. So um, that's how we're going to look at it. Uh, once you've read the whole thing, you read the beginning differently. It's, it's the beginning of this story about Jesus Christ. Right? Um, so our time in Genesis 1 through 3 will take into account the whole of the scriptures. And this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the, the first verse. We're going to ask questions like, what God is this? What's he like? Who, who is this God? Um, what, what did God make exactly? And uh, what significance does that have for us? So, sorry for the long introduction to the series here, but let's get into the text. Let's pray, and then I'll, I'll read. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we need your help anytime we look at your word, even when we look at these verses that seem so, um, so simple, so straightforward, um, and and which are particularly fundamental to our way of thinking about you and about our relationship with you, we pray that you would help us through Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, so this is the starting point of our reality. Right? This is the starting point. This is the beginning of something. It's the beginning of our reality, and our reality is a certain kind of reality. Uh, and it's, it's probably not, uh, it's not exactly the kind of reality that we all presuppose that it is. Having, having lived in the culture that we live in, having grown up with the worldview, the scientific 
questions and processes that we've grown up with, um, our reality that, as we understand it, needs to be shaped after the reality that God is declaring to us here. Uh, he's, he's giving us uh, something of the significance, something of the meaning, and something of the purpose of our reality. Even right here, only in this single verse, right at the beginning of the scriptures, um, it's not just a it's not just a, it's, it doesn't just say something like, in the beginning, before there was anything else, uh, God made stuff. He made all matter. He made all the, the fundamental elements, the building blocks of uh, the material world. Right? It doesn't say that. It says that he created something in particular, the heavens and the earth, which is all things. It includes all things, but as we'll get uh, to it in a minute, it, it has in it this concept of the, the significance of the heavens and the earth. There's something significant about that beyond just kind of mere neutral matter that he created. So it's the starting point of our reality, and we find the meaning of our reality even here in this first verse. And in, in order to understand it, um, I think it's probably a common question for people to ask, well, what happened before the beginning, <laughs> right? Um, in the beginning, God did this. Um, and we, uh, we, I think, rightly assume that before the beginning, there was nothing other than God, right? I think we rightly assume that. That's, um, in a sense, kind of a, a logical implication of this and some of the other scriptures in the, uh, in the, in the Bible. Um, it's never explicitly stated, like, before anything else was, God was, and he made it all. Like, it's... Uh, that doctrine of uh, creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, is not explicitly stated, it's implicit, right? We can understand that. We can ask the question of this text and say, well, <clears throat> if he created all things at a certain point, uh, then before that point, there was nothing else and uh, there was only God. But um, this text makes it clear there was only this God, right? There was only, as uh, the, the Hebrew says, Elohim. There was this God, only one God. And he says, um, there are plenty of places where it says he's the only God, right? So uh, in Isaiah 40, actually I'll read several uh, passages here from Isaiah and also from Job. Isaiah 40 says, have you not known, have you not heard, Yahweh, the Lord, uh, Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. In Isaiah 46, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Isaiah 48, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. And Job 38, um, he's asking Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Right, so there's just this one God who did it. And he's asking this, it's, it's a rhetorical question he's asking of Job. Uh, you were there, weren't you? When I uh, set the foundations of the world and stretched out the heavens. And he goes on and on in, uh, in this section of Job. He says, surely you were there, right? No, nobody else was there. There was only God. Before the beginning, there was only God. And uh, the text says, uh, it calls him Elohim, right? Elohim, which um, is a curious way of saying God because it's plural, 
right? Um, it's, a, it's a plural for El. El means like strong one or mighty one. Elohim, which is used uh, a lot of times in the Old Testament for God, for this particular God, uh, is, is a plural word, right? And, and that, I think, is a hint at what we see more clearly developed, more clearly revealed throughout the rest of the scriptures, especially when you get to the New Testament, the baptism of Jesus Christ, you see that there is room in the, the singular, you know, monotheistic Godhead. There's room in the Godhead for um, more than one, in a sense, because, uh, and you see that hinted at even in this first verse, that uh, the, the word for gods is plural. And so, um, so when we consider this verse, we know it's talking about the eternal trinity. We know it's talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, right? One God whose being is three persons. One God whose being is three persons in communion. It's the Father loving the Son in the Spirit. That's the God that this is talking about. We know that from the rest of the scriptures, which reveal uh, him to us more clearly uh, as they progress. <clears throat> John Calvin said, we ought in the very order of things in, in creation diligently to contemplate God's fatherly love. So we know that he's this God, this God that we've seen throughout the rest of the scriptures that we see clearly in Jesus Christ in the gospel. We know it's this God who created the heavens and the earth. Who is he? What is he like? Uh, he is sort of first and foremost, he's a father, right? Uh, Mike Reeves has a book uh, called Delighting in the Trinity, where he talks about God before the beginning. <clears throat> I'll read a, a section of it. He says, a father is a person who gives life, who begets children. Now that insight is like a stick of dynamite in all our thoughts about God. For if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity, he's been life-giving. The Father, then, is the Father of the Eternal Son, and he finds his very identity, his fatherhood, in loving and giving out his life and being to the Son. That is why it is important to note that the Son is the Eternal Son. There was never a time when he didn't exist. If there were, then God is a completely different sort of being. If there were once a time when the Son didn't exist, then there was once a time when the Father was not yet a father. And if that is the case, then once upon a time, God was not loving, since all by himself he would have had nobody to love. We have this God, we have the triune God, who from eternity is Father, loving Son, in the Spirit, um, from eternity, right? There never was a time when that wasn't true. Before the beginning. I don't know how that works, before the beginning, right? Uh, how eternity is related to time. But before he created, there was only him, and he was this kind of God. He's a God of love because he's three persons in one God. And uh, we see Jesus talking about this when he's praying in John 17. He's praying to his Father. He says, Now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was created, before it existed. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
So Jesus is claiming for himself to be the eternal son of God who shared glory with God, who uh, was the beloved of the Father uh, before the foundation of the world, before there was time or space, before there was anything else, right? <clears throat> and so um, when we look at our passage in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see no other God than the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, you see it everywhere in the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, right? the Son of God. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in Colossians 1, by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Through him and for him. So, um, so something that you see about this God who stands before the beginning as the eternal trinity, the God of love, something you see about him in this passage is that he did something, and we suspect it's because he wanted to do it. Right? He created the heavens and the earth, and you can deduce from that that um, he, wasn't, he didn't feel compelled to do it. He wasn't forced to do it against his will. This came from who he is. This came from him being the God of love. He wanted to create what he created. Right? He wanted to create the heavens and the earth. And it says in Ephesians 1, uh, that God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. His plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. God did this from before the foundation of the world. His plan was love to unite all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and on earth. Um, so his plan was love, right? He created the world for the sake of love. There's a sense in which you could say the father created the world uh, as a gift for his son. You could say um, a lot of different things, how this expresses the love of God in, uh, in creation. But um, I don't know how many of you watch Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood on OPB in the mornings, like 8 o'clock or whatever it is. Uh, <clears throat> he always sings these songs, right? They're catchy little songs that get stuck in your head and they help you get through life. Right, that's the that's the point. Life is hard, especially when you're a little kid, and um, you need these songs to help you. One of the songs that he sings is, "Making something is one way to say I love you." Right? Making something like a gift, like kids make gifts for their parents when it's a birthday or when it's Christmas or whatever. You know, making something is one way to say I love you. Right. In a, in a sense, it's, uh, it stands there at the beginning of the universe. It's the, it's the universal way of God saying, I love you. And he's saying, the father's saying it to his son. Uh, the son is saying it back to his father. And they're saying it to what they made. They're saying it to people like us through the creation. God created the heavens and the earth. And that has significance. That phrase, the heavens and the earth, <clears throat> because like I said, he, he doesn't just say God created all the fundamental building blocks for reality uh, in some way that kind of jives with our materialistic, secular understanding of what reality is composed of, little atoms uh, that, that work 
the way they do or whatever. It doesn't say God created all matter, doesn't create all reality, not even just all things that exist. It says that he created the heavens and the earth. And um, what does that mean? Karl Barth <clears throat> said that heaven and earth describe an arena prepared for a quite definite event in the center of which, from our standpoint, of course, stands man, humanity. As we're going to see that as we look at the rest of this, uh, you know, chapter, you know, chapters one through three of Genesis, we're going to see it clearly that, that man is kind of the centerpiece of God's activity here in creation, right? Humanity, men and women, uh, is kind of the, the most significant thing. Community there is the most significant thing that he's doing. <clears throat> and heaven and earth, or the heavens and the earth, are the biblical way of understanding the places where God meets with people. Right? And in a sense, it's a, it, it means it's the cosmic temple. Right? The temple is the place where God meets with his creatures, with his creation, for fellowship, for union, right? for love, communion. And the heavens and the earth were created to be that place. These are meeting places. Right? Meeting places that are to be filled with people who can reciprocate his love and his glory. Right? So the heavens and the earth don't, don't just stand for all the places out there. Uh, the heavens and the earth stand for the places where we're to meet with God. So in the beginning, the triune God created everything to be a temple. Right? Everything to be a place where we would meet with him. And he, he did create everything. There's nothing outside the, the realm, the scope of his creation that exists, right? And that means that he's not a tribal God. He's not a God who's limiting his, his interactions to a certain family or a certain people group. From the very beginning, uh, we see that God is God of the whole universe, and the whole universe is meant to be in relationship with him. All things summed up and united and brought together in, in Jesus Christ is, is the, the plan for his, uh, his, his plan for the fullness of time. <clears throat> and the heavens and the earth are a phrase that you see repeated throughout the scriptures. And then as you get toward the end of the scriptures, uh, Revelation 21, 22, you see all of this being made new. right? And it's the same kind of language, but it's the new heavens and the new earth. right? Revelation 21 says... Uh, it's John's vision. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So the new reality that everything, that all reality is moving toward, right, that God initially created very good, as we'll see again in these chapters. God created very good, Yet uh, we've broken it, and we've broken ourselves, and we've broken our relationship with God, and we've caused this, the, the current heavens and the earth, to be a place where uh, we're at least faltering in our relationship with God. God's going to restore it. He's going to make it new, right, forever. And the new heavens and the new earth will be a place where his glory uh, dwells, a place where we don't need the sun anymore, maybe metaphorical, <clears throat> because his light will be present to us all. Uh, the new reality that he's creating, the, the trajectory of his creation that starts here in the beginning and has these, these, um, these themes that tie it together as a place that God made, this, this universe, the heavens and the earth, 
the trajectory of it, of the new reality, is a, it's a city of joy, and it's a city of life, and it's a city of healing. It needs to be a place of healing because of what we've done to, to break everything because of our sin, right? But the picture that we see in the last chapters of the Bible is that because now in the new heavens and the new earth, the kind of the, the ultimate purpose for creation has finally been achieved out there in the future still, um, <clears throat> uh, God dwells with his people immediately and, and constantly, and it changes everything. So the, the, the universe will be what it was intended to be, this cosmic temple, once again. His ultimate pur- purpose is relational because his being is relational. Because he's this kind of God, because he's the God who before he made anything, before the beginning, he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons in love, in communion. Because he's that, the end goal of everything that he's doing, the heavens and the earth, becoming the new heavens and the new earth, the end goal of it is relational. He wants to extend his divine relationship to all the corners of the earth, Uh, but to you, you know to you, as remarkable as that may, may seem to you, he wants to extend divine relationship to you. He took the initiative in creating all things. It was his idea in the first place, right? Didn't just pop out of, out of nowhere. Um, he took the initiative in creating all things you included. You would not exist if it weren't for him being who he is and wanting to do what he did and, and doing what he did in the creation of the heavens and the earth. <clears throat> you wouldn't exist if it weren't for his will. So What's the significance of this you know, for us, that, that we're part of his creation, right? that we're part of his, his long-term project in uh, making this heavens and the earth, this, this new heavens and new earth, this place where he meets with his, his creation. The significance for us is that God, right now, is revealing himself to you as this kind of God. Right now, he's revealing himself to you as this kind of God who wants relationship with you and that everything he's done from the beginning of the world is, is ordered to bring about everlasting joy um, that's shared, that's mutually shared between him and you. Right? He wants you to be in this relationship. He's revealing himself to you. He's revealing his work to you for this relationship. And that's why he gives us the Bible. Right? That's what this book is about. Um, Genesis sets the stage for the whole thing. Um, he's, he's not... In these early chapters, he's not giving us kind of the sterile, detached um, scientific explanation for the, the, the way matter exists, right? He, uh, for, for the process of creation on that level. He's not giving us that. He's giving us this text for our relationship to the eternal triune God, right? There's a purpose to all things. The significance of reality is that there's a purpose, that there's a direction, and people today are looking for, um, I think Christians are, are looking for kind of these armor-piercing rounds for the scientific battle, right? You've got a lot of scientists out there who say, God's not behind it all, it developed in this way, not the way the Bible says, or whatever. Uh, and, and Christians are looking for these armor-piercing rounds. If I can just figure out the early chapters of Genesis in such a way that it'll destroy all scientific, you know, alternatives to, to this account... It's, it's not meant to be a scientific account, right? It's not meant to give you those answers. It's not meant to give you that kind of ammunition for that kind of argument. Right? Uh, it's not written for that um, purpose. It's not answering modern scientific questions about chemistry and biology and geology and astronomy. Right? 
It's answering questions about relationship and purpose and meaning. Right? That's, that's what this text is about. And that means, I think that can be encouraging to us. It means you don't have to be afraid of engaging with people in, in scientific conversations. You don't have to be afraid of science. Right? Um, and we'll talk about that more as we go through these uh, chapters. But um, this text is not about kind of religion versus science. Right? Um, unless, of course, just say this one thing, unless, of course, the real purpose of science is to remove all meaning, remove all purpose, uh, remove uh, the concept of destiny, the concept of relationship with God from you. If, this, if science is trying to do that, then this is against that, right? But um, otherwise, we don't have to be afraid of, of scientific explorations of the origins of the universe. You just don't have to be afraid of that. Um, <clears throat> but there is that resistance, right? Because we know uh, that, that uh, we know a lot of atheists, we know a lot of scientists, we know a lot of people who are um, kind of angrily opposed to the Christian worldview <clears throat> who do use science as a way to make declarations and assertions about the ultimate meaning of reality, right? They, they do use science to say, see, it's not really about relationship and communion with an eternal God, right? Uh, they do use science that way, and that's because there's resistance to God, there's resistance to who he really is and what he's really been doing in the world. There's resistance to his revelation about himself and his work uh, in the heart of every single one of us. It's not just those atheist scientists out there. Um, they try to do it the way they're trying to do it. We do it the way that we do it, right? But every one of us has this resistance to knowing God as he truly is and to acknowledging, yes, he's God, he's the only God, and what he says goes, his purpose for the universe is uh, the true one. <clears throat> and you see that in Romans 1. Right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. We, have, we avoid it, deliberately ignore it. Right? We suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them. He's talking about everybody here, right? What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Everybody who resists this one true God, who suppresses the truth about him, who suppresses knowledge about him, are without excuse. We all know certain things about God on a fundamental level. For although they knew God, it continues, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We turned away from the one true God to worship anything else, all these other things that he made, things that he made, We'll worship that instead of the one true God. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. And our text asserts then, our text in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our text asserts, it reinforces something that, that we already kind of know. There's some kind of instinct in us. Right? The Bible says, we all know, we're all without excuse. There's something about God that we're suppressing. 
that we're resisting, <clears throat> that we're deliberately ignoring, and that is the eternal power and the divine nature of God, of the God who created the world. Not just that God is powerful. Not just that, wow, how strong must a God be to create a world like this? You know? Not just that, but the nature of his power, the character of his power, that his power is good, that his power creates good and, and beautiful things, things for our enjoyment, things that amaze us, right? wonderful things. Science, uh, <clears throat> you know, think about science exploring creation uh, is, is a fine thing. People say, man, I love science. I don't think you love science. I think you love the world that science is exploring. It's the world that God made. You can see in all the things that God has made what kind of God he is. Right? He's a God of, um, of beauty and wonder, and his power is a, is a good power. And we need, uh, we need to consider that. We need to consider his power and his divine nature. We need to consider his love, who he really is, who he's revealed himself to be, that he created for the sake of love, that he created for the sake of fellowship with us. You, you're sitting there. He created you. He created all things for the sake of a relationship with you. <clears throat> we need to consider that. And the way that he ultimately brings about this fellowship is by drawing people like us who are now rebels, right? people like us who have sinned against God, who have turned away from him, He's drawing people like us all the way in to his own family in his son. His plan is to unite all things, things in heaven and on earth, in Jesus Christ. His plan is to draw rebels like us all the way into his son by making us new, by making all things new in him, in Jesus Christ, in his love. That's what kind of God he is. That's what he intends in creation. <clears throat> That's what the whole Bible is about, starting here. Isn't that at least intriguing? Right? Isn't that intriguing? I mean, does it make you want to learn more about him and about his plans for you, his plans for this world, for all of reality which he's created? <clears throat> if, it, if it's intriguing and it's interesting to you, then you should study the Bible. Right. Pretty simple application, the significance of it. Here at the beginning of his word is uh, we find motivation to read the rest of it. Right. We should study the Bible from that perspective. You should trust that this God is speaking to you for your relationship with him. Not just giving you interesting data points that you can use in arguments against scientists or whatever. He's speaking to you about your relationship with him throughout this word, so you should study the Bible from that perspective. Read it with that purpose in mind, the purpose being to know God through Jesus Christ. Because the God who created the heavens and the earth in the beginning is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's how he wants us to know him. Uh, read it with that purpose in mind, not just to kind of be a better Christian, right? as if reading the Bible makes you feel good about yourself, you could kind of check all the boxes, I did my Christian duty, I'm okay now because I read some of the Bible, right? <clears throat> Read it as a, a resource for your relationship with him. Pray that God will give you that kind of relational understanding of his word as you read it. Right? Um, you, you won't understand everything that you read. I don't understand everything that I read. I was pretty overwhelmed by 
how little I came away after studying all this week, reading several books, um, trying to get this passage down. This is one little verse, overwhelmed with how much I don't understand about this. Um, almost to the point of being discouraged, but it's okay. Uh, it's, good, it's good news that God's word uh, is over our heads in some ways. You won't understand everything you read, but the Bible is clear about what you need for your relationship with God. It is clear about what you need for salvation. It's clear about what you need to deepen and grow in your walk with God. It is clear about those things. And uh, so read the scriptures, uh, pray that God would give you that kind of relational understanding about him through the scriptures, and, and come to church right, to hear, not just about God, but from God. Right? Because the scriptures are his word. The scriptures are his revelation about himself. Um, so come to church to hear not just about him, but from him. Because uh, relationship with him is best done in relationship with others. Right? He's a God of community. So relationship with him is best done in relationship with others. We can help each other grow in that relationship as we share his word together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed that, um, that you would even uh, do what you did at the beginning of all things, that you would create anything aside from yourself, knowing that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, were... Um, from eternity, in, in perfect communion, in perfect delightful love, mutual love. And yet, um, you chose, not out of need, but because you are a God of love, you chose to, to make, to create, to shape a world with a, with a purpose in mind. We pray that you would attune our hearts to your purpose for our creation. We pray that you would help us to trust that, um, even though we may not understand everything about um, what you've made and how you've made it. <clears throat> we know um, to some degree why you've made it, and it's because you are good and you love us. We pray that you would overcome our resistance to you by showing yourself to be good to us uh, through Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would fix our minds and our hearts on him so that we can have a true and everlasting relationship with you through him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.